Welcome to Power Lunch, the podcast from the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy, where you can get smarter while eating your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm your host, Aaron Clems, Director of Public Engagement at MCEA. Power Lunch is a conversation with one of MCEA's experts recorded live. We live stream these conversations on Facebook, and we also make them available to you as an audio podcast. In each episode, we focus on one aspect of MCEA's work to defend Minnesota's water, climate, air, and people. MCEA has been doing this critically important work since 1974. And our lawyers, policy experts, legislative lobbyists, and mapping and GIS specialists give us a unique capacity to protect the Minnesota that you love. Today, we're talking to Kevin Lee, MCEA's Mining Program Director. Kevin is one of the foremost experts on Polymet's proposed sulfide mine and Minnesota's rules and laws about mining. This conversation was recorded in October of 2018, just a week before the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources issued permits for the Polymet proposal. MCEA is reviewing these permits to determine our next steps. We're also working to ensure that these permits are suspended until Minnesota agencies review the larger and even riskier mine plans that Polymet has touted to their investors. But this conversation is a great primer for people who want to understand what's at stake in this decision and know more about the state of Minnesota's mining laws and regulations. We hope you learned something that you didn't know before today from this conversation. If you want to keep up with our work, visit our website, mncenter.org, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at MCEA1974. That's at MCEA1974. If you'd like to support our work, please consider a contribution. Go to mncenter.org slash donate. And now, our Power Lunch conversation with Kevin Lee, MCEA's Mining Program Director. So Kevin, tell me a little bit more about how you got into this line of work and how you came to work on mining issues at MCEA. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, it was a pretty personal decision. I mean, I think like a lot of people, I, I read about it in the news, to be honest. Um, I, this was back in 2010, and, and at the time I was sort of considering some some changes in, in career, and I remember reading an article about uh, specifically the Polymet proposal. And at the time, it was going through environmental review, and they'd had a, an environmental study that was rejected by the by the EPA. And... Um, I remember reading it and and thinking about you know I, I went to college in Minnesota and spent a lot of time um, up in northern Minnesota and so it really it really resonated with me that that there was this threat to you know a place that I really love that that will last you know for centuries possibly. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about where we're at right now um, in this kind of process. I mean, as everyone knows that we've, Minnesota's had a robust iron and taconite mining industry for over a century now, back to the 1880s. But copper nickel mining has never been done in Minnesota before. So what are the differences between these industries and what are some of the different risks that copper nickel proposals like Polymet pose to Minnesota's water and uh, people's health? Sure. So there's a couple things that that we that are really notable about this new industry uh, that make it very different from the kind of mining that we've seen in Minnesota in the past. Um, one of them has to do with the chemistry of it. That f- for for various reasons, a lot of the metals that we're interested in are attached to sulfides, uh, and so when those get broken up, and you know. Th- Mining is basically a process of blasting out this rock and grinding it up into a powder and taking out what you need. Um, and what you do, it, well, what happens when you do that is that these sulfides become exposed to air and water and they create acids. 
and those acids can leach metals out and make them available to the environment. Um, that's something that doesn't really happen in, in taconite mining. And it's one of the reasons why non-ferrous mining, you know, around both the U.S. and, and globally, is known for um, a very long legacy of contamination. Once this process gets started, this acidic generation process is very difficult to stop. And um, so that's one of the things that, that concerns us. We're, we're looking at other places where this has happened and caused public liabilities that, you know, have no end. You know, there's no date at which that public liability will stop. Um, so that's one of the things we think about. Um, another is related to the size of these facilities. Um, some of the taconite processing we have in Minnesota is very large. Um, it would also be the case for non-ferrous mining, and that's because the grades are much smaller. So I mean, when we talk about the grades, we're talking about what percentage of the rock are you after? Um, and so for taconites, it might be up, up there toward, you know, 20% or so. Uh, for non-ferrous mining, if you look at the polymet uh, case as an example, you're looking at rock that is 0.3% copper. So what that means Z is so that... So 0.3% is 0 all 0.3%. That's yeah. right. So 99.7% of what you have ground up and mixed with water uh, becomes waste. And that is the central problem with uh, these projects, you know, after you've extracted what you want, you're left with the waste product, which is a slurry, so mostly water and a lot of powdered rock in it, basically. And the question is, what do you do with that? So, um, what, what, so what is Polymet proposing to do with all that extra rock? I mean, we're talking about how much billions of tons, probably, in the long in the long run. It, it's billions of tons. Billions of pounds, probably. Yeah, there's there's various measurements. Yeah. Um, I I believe that. Annually, uh, it's and I'd have to double check the number, but but it's around 120 million short tons because there's also short tons and metric tons, and okay. it gets confusing quickly. But yes, they're very very large quantities. Um, so there's a couple ways of dealing with that waste stream. Um, the what Polymet proposes to do would be to basically store it in its slurry form. So when we when we, you know, I said the question is, uh, you know, what do you do with that waste stream? You know, the answer that Polymet proposes is, well, let's put it behind an earthen berm um, and leave it there. Um, and so that is the, that's the most cost-effective way, you know, i.e. cheapest way of, of dealing with this waste. Um, it's also one of the riskier ways of dealing with it. So what are the risks then? Why, why, why are you so concerned about that particular way of disposing of all that mine waste? So that type of storage, it's called a slurry impoundment. They are designed to leak, right? That's that's sort of a, a feature, not a bug. Uh, that's because you know if you were to try and contain that amount of water, you know you would be unsuccessful. You can't control that amount of water. So they're designed to sort of let the water filter out into the environment. Um, and there are a couple. There are some proposals that they have to try and control that water. The water that comes off of that is obviously contaminated. Uh, because it's it's become acidic, it, it it leaches out some of these metals, and then it makes you know, you know every anything in that rock, um, you know from arsenic, lead, mercury, zinc, uh, it makes that environment uh, available rather to uh, groundwater and surface water. Um, the second thing that that we think about when we talk about slurry impoundments and the, and the risk is the risk to the workers that work there and the downstream communities from a more catastrophic failure. Um, this has this has been a problem, you know, going back decades. Um, it's gained a lot more attention in recent years because there's been a couple very high-profile uh, accidents where these tailings dams um, fail all at once, 
And um, so one of the most famous was a 2014 incident in British Columbia at a mine called Mount Polly. Um, that this the tailings dam failed, uh, and it's you know it's hard to describe uh, without pictures. But if you can imagine a lake that's sort of held in place and perched up in the air, being released all at once. So you know if you look at an aerial photo, you can see you know what used to be a sort of four foot little trickle of a stream has been blown out by by this essentially toxic lake. Um, and uh, there was an even more serious incident a year later in Brazil, uh, which killed 19 people. There was a village very nearby this tailings facility that, that failed. It was a, it was a very large um, tailings dam, and it failed. And the concern is that those incidents are happening more and more often because the grades of these ores have been dropping over time, which means that you have to process more and more hmm. rock to get anything worth anything. So the, so the, the waste facilities themselves are getting larger and larger and larger. And they're, it's very hard to contain water. Um, and when they fail, they fail very badly. So what's downstream of Polymet's proposed mine waste dam? The mine site and the plant site are both in the Lake Superior watershed. They, they are at the sort of the headwaters of the St. Louis River. Um, which then flows, you know, near Duluth and, and, and into Lake Superior. So the the resources and communities that would be at risk would be those ones that that use or recreate or wild rice or fish from that river. Um, and so one of the things you hear a lot from proponents of these proposals is that Minnesota has very strong standards, the strongest in the world. Um, and I guess the question I have is, is that true? And, I mean, it seems like... Um, Minnesota has a kind of, you know, we're always above average attitude toward things. Sure. So how does the statement that says Minnesota has the strongest standards in the world uh, hold up to reality? Yeah, it, it's pretty objectively not true. Um, one of the interesting things that happened after the Mount Polly incident was they, they did a, a very extensive debriefing um, in the form of an expert panel report. It's very similar to kind of what happens with a plane crash, you know, the NTSB will come in and say, well, what happened here and how can we avoid it in the future? And um, they did that and, and they came out with very clear recommendations that said, you know, you cannot store that mine waste with water anymore. It's dangerous. It's just too risky to do that. And so one of the things they talked about uh, as a sort of best available technology is the term that they use uh, would be to filter those tailings first. So you know, earlier on when we mentioned that the, the central problem with mining is what to do with that waste stream that's been generated. Um, so you can store it as a slurry. You can just pump it out onto the ground and leave it there forever. Um, that's the slurry. That's one way of doing it. Um, another way of doing it, it would be to filter those tailings first. So you take the water out. You treat the water um, just like any wastewater treatment facility would. You discharge that to, you know, the local stream uh, once it's been treated and cleaned up. And then what you're left with is basically a solid. So you don't need a dam at all. You, you, you put it on the ground. You're able to line it uh, on the bottom. You're able to treat it much more like a, a landfill. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what, that's what the recommendation was after, after a really tragic accident like, like Mount Polly was we got to change the way we do things. And so you see um, states in the U.S. that have started requiring that sort of technology. Um, we don't do that. Uh, and another thing that's that's happened since then, um, with the sort of jurisdictions that have experience with mining gone bad, 
places like Montana. Montana has a very long history of non-ferrous mining. Uh, British Columbia, where the Mount Polly incident happened. One of the things that they do is they have a much more robust system of, of independent review of the mine designs. And so if a company wants to open up a mine, they will convene a panel of mine engineers to look at that and say, so what are your performance criteria for, for this, this waste facility? Um, what are you going to do if, if XYZ goes wrong? So it's a much more robust, very highly technical review. Um, so, you know, no two mines are exactly alike. And um, so you see this happening in, in Montana, British Columbia. It's also part of the, um, the Mining Industry Association in Canada. It's called the Mining, Associ Mining Association of Canada. Um, has started to implement a lot of these procedures, too. Um, they view it as integral to, you know, developing a safe and responsible mining industry. Um, we don't do that here. Why? Why? I mean, I guess the, so. When were Minnesota's mining regulations written down, and what have we? What kind of changes have we made over time to them? So the first mining law was passed in the late '60s, I believe it was '69, and um, they've never been used. Polymet would be the first mine that would actually implement those those laws. Um, then. You know, the process, you have laws, then you have regulations, and the agency develops regulations that sort of um, more fleshes out the law itself. So we have non-ferrous regulations that were developed in the early 90s um, that have also never been used. It's just we've, we've just never had a mine that's, um, that's come along because these, you know, we've known about the, this resource for a very long time, but it's so low-grade that no one has wanted to develop it. Um, and so we've never had to use these regulations before. Now we're seeing the first proposals. So we're in uncharted territory, really, when it comes to what these standards are and how they would be used. Exactly. Okay. Um, I mean, if Minnesota were to really live up to this moniker, as we have the strongest standards in the world, what would we, what would we be requiring of yeah. companies like Polymet who want to open copper nickel mines here? Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's impossible to ignore this recommendation from the mine engineers that looked at uh, the Mount Polly disaster and, dis and determine that you cannot continue to store water with mine waste. Uh, so we would want to see standards that implement that in some way. Um, we would want to see, you know, more robust independent review uh, of these proposals so that, you know, the agency um, that is in charge of reviewing permits, which is in our case the DNR, which is also charged with promoting mining, uh, and, the and then they're asked to simultaneously ensure the safety of mining. Um, and so, you know, an independent review process would, would go a long way toward alleviating some of that internal conflict that our agencies have. Um, you would want to see much more serious financial assurance um, standards. So financial assurance is the damage deposit that a company has to put down in order to mine. It, it pays for the costs that are almost certain to happen if, when the mine closes. Um, so you would want to see financial assurance regulations that, for example, prohibit uh, pay-as-you-go scheme, which is what we would see in Polymet, which is, which is a financial assurance that, that says that um, we will contribute to the financial assurance if we make enough money to do it. And so you'd want to see changes to that that are much more protective of Minnesotan taxpayers. I mean, in, in Polymet's case, how much money is it going to take if they close unexpectedly or went bankrupt? What would be the potential liability that taxpayers would be on the hook for? Yeah, so the state ha has done a, a very developed estimate of that. It changes over time because it depends on what stage mm -hmm. the mine is at. Um, at its 
peak, it, the cost would to this state, if it were, they were to take over, would be about one point one billion dollars. So that's so one point one billion dollars, mm-hmm. and their plan is to pay that over time into a fund, or how do how do they go about trying to make? I mean. So you hear an awful lot that there's bankruptcy-proof financial assurance in Minnesota that would protect taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Um, how how does the proposal that's on the table fit that talking point? Yeah. So th- th- what they would do is they would use a mix of uh, financial instruments. So they would use surety bonds, which is you know it's kind of a way of it's almost like co-signing a lease. You know, mm-hmm. you get some other company to, to to say that we'll we'll help cover you. It's a very similar to insurance. Okay. So they would have a package that includes insurance and surety bonds, and then a trust fund that gets funded over time. Uh, you know, if they generate the profits to depo- make a deposit into that trust fund. Yeah. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I mean, so, but it sounds like you know this isn't. I mean, how, what's the size of the Polymet financial liability and the financial assurance package relative to other mines that we have in Minnesota, relative to other mines across the United States. Is this a big number? Or is this a small number? Well, this this is a big number. Okay. Um, you know, one point one billion dollars. It's not like that is, um, you know, some sort of industry standard. That's a that's a very high estimate. Um, you know, compared to our state's budget, it would be. Yeah, I don't know what the what the numbers are, but it's comparable to the to, 35 40 billion dollars, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um so it it's it's a very very large estimate. I mean, you're talking about water treat treating the water forever. You know, that that's that's the plan. That yeah. that this trust fund is designed if they fund into it is designed to provide enough money to pay for water treatment forever. Um so it, you know, they're they're very large sums of money. Okay. I mean, and that kind of just highlights how much is at stake if we get this wrong. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, So I I want to talk about some other things that proponents of this mine and other mines like it in Minnesota say an awful lot about why we need to do this kind of mining here in Minnesota. Sure. And one of the ones that I think is most interesting and I think complicated, actually, is this question about what happens if we don't mine it here when it comes to the other places where we source our metals. Yeah. Minnesota and other places across the United States, we're part of a global economy. Um, Metals are something that we use in everyday life. And you oftentimes hear that folks say we should mine it here because we have standards that protect the environment, that protect workers. Uh, that the other places across the globe, mining operations like this one pollute and exploit workers. So how do you think about Polymet and the work that you're doing on it in the context of this global mining industry, yeah. uh, which does have a history of pollution and does have a history of exploiting workers? Yeah. Um, yeah, that is a serious, tragic problem, this, this environmental degradation and exploitation of workers that we see in the, in the third world. It's a terrible problem, um, and it's something that we work pretty hard on. It's just that y- you can't address that problem by opening up a new mine. That that is not what's going to help you know the, the people that are affected by these mines um, in places like you know the Democratic Republic of the Congo in in Africa. Uh, it's a very large source of cobalt, um, and you know it gets a lot of attention for for using mining practices that that are harmful. So um, Glencore is the, one of the companies that's a very big player um, in the Congo, in the, in the DRC. Uh, they employ about 15,000 people there. Um, and one of their mines, you know, they, they recently had a collapse of a pit wall that killed six of the workers. Um, so it's a very serious problem. And 
it's something that we work on a lot. And I mean, the thing is, when someone says that, you know, I want to assume that they are expressing that out of an honest concern for the people that are affected by this and not just using a talking point to, you know, push an agenda, right? Uh, I mean, if that were the case, you would want to see, you would expect that person to be advocating for changes to make mining safer around the world. So you would expect them to be participating in processes like um, the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance, um, IRMA, which is designed to basically certify mines, uh, develop standards for mining safely in a way that protects both the environment and the workers. And it's designed to, you know, you develop these standards and then once a company uh, complies with them, you can certify them as, as safe. Um, and that's, that's a process that we, that we, that we work with um, on a day-to-day -day basis to try and improve these supply chains around the world. Um, and, you know, it's tough to see most of the people that make this point that, well, if we didn't mine here, we'd mine somewhere else. We don't see them standing next to us, you know, advocating with us to try and protect those communities. You know, you don't see them, uh, you know, doing an analysis of uh, mining from secondary sources like recycling or mining landfills or mining tailings basin, mining existing waste facilities uh, so that we don't have to rely on those new sources uh, in places where, you know, environmental degradation has been the history. Um, you know, you don't see that. And so, I mean, what that tells me is that, you know, Oftentimes when that point is made, it's not at, out of a genuine concern for those communities. It's, you know, a talking point to try and push a specific project. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine going to the Democratic Republic of Congo, sorry, now, uh, and, and, and talking to some of the workers there and saying, you know, we hear your concerns about workplace safety. We hear your concerns about what this mine is doing to your groundwater, right? Um, but, you know, rest assured, we're going to open a mine in Minnesota. You know, I mean, <laughs> they would they would laugh at you because yeah. because you you would you would make it clear to them that you actually don't care about their plight. You are trying to push an agenda, you know. And we've actually talked to people that go to those places, you know, and talk to those communities and and what they say is we don't want this to happen to anyone else, you know. They don't say, "Well, I'm glad you're opening a mine in Minnesota because that'll help us." That's that's just that would be you know, irrational. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Glencore um, a moment ago. I'm not sure everyone understands the role that Glencore plays in the, the proposals that are here in Minnesota. So Glencore is involved and is the largest stockholder in the PolyMet mine proposal. Can you talk a little bit more about how Glencore is connected to the PolyMet mine proposal? Yeah, so they've been the primary investor um, since, you know, virtually since the, the project's inception. Um, and they are, you know, very likely to be either the, excuse me, owner and operator of a mine that if, if one happened, um, or at least, you know, a major stockholder. To, to date, they've invested, you know, a few hundred million dollars in the project. And so they are sort of the, the primary kind of, I don't want to use a legal term, but party of interest, you know, here. They, they, are, they are the main players here. Um, a mine like Polymet would cost nine hundred forty-five million to build. You know, there's not a lot of companies that have a million, a, a billion dollars rather, uh, lying around to invest in a mine. Um, Glencore is one of those few companies. Um, they're also one of the ones 
you know, most associated with uh, workplace hazards in the third world. Um, they're one of the ones most associated with, with environmental contamination. Um, and so their involvement here, um, you know, concerns me and, and con should concern, you know, anyone who cares about the communities around there, uh, including the fact that, you know, they, they are well known for, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a very, there's an incident that happened recently um, at a aluminum plant in Texas, the Sherwin Aluminum Plant. Um, and what happened there is sort of the MO, which was, you know, the, the facility, the, the plant was owned by a subsidiary of, a subsidiary of Glencore. Um, the union there, they were represented by United Steelworkers. Uh, they couldn't agree on, on, on the contract, uh, and they were locked out, even though the union said that they would continue to work as they continued to negotiate, but they were locked out. And they were locked out for two years. Um, at the end of those two years, they, that company went bankrupt and then emerged out of bankruptcy, was purchased by another subsidiary of Glencore to shed all of those, they call them legacy costs, so the costs associated with paying for pensions and health care for those union workers and reopening the facility uh, without you know, using union jobs and, and incurring those costs. Um, and it was, it was devastating to those communities, you know, and, and you see these communities saying things like, like, you know, Glencore destroyed our community. And so that, that is, that's something that concerns me deeply. Yeah, and, and given the history of especially pensions and benefits that have been cut or been turned over to the federal government slashed by 80% or more from some of the existing mines, including the Erie mine, which, mm -hmm. is, where the, which is the plant that they mm -hmm. propose to reuse. It's really an interesting story. Yeah. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about um, some of the updates that Polymet's now made to some of their plans. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a, this is a story that really I think a lot of folks don't understand, that Polymet in the the spring of this year put out a new financial study that tried to look at the potential, um, both in terms of profit for their proposed mine that they've, they've put forward for permitting, but they also included some expansion and some changes scenarios, some, ch some changed scenarios. Um, so let's talk about the first part, which is that, you know, this study showed that basically the profitability fell from what they were originally saying about 30% profit to about 10% profit. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? On it, just for that one data point, for the fact that it's now a 10% profit mine. Is that a, a really profitable mine? Is it one that looks financially secure and robust, one that can get financing? No, it's not. That, that was a staggering number to come out of that report. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how this is a very low-grade deposit. When the deposit, it's, a, it's called the Duluth complex. It, it stretches from, as you would imagine, Duluth, you know, uh, up into the Boundary Waters. And um, the ore there is very diffused. Um, and so f we've known about it for decades. And, and for those decades, no one has been willing to try and develop the mine because the business model just frankly wasn't there. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it would have been very, very hard to, to make money off of it. Mining is a very risky thing to do. You're, you are subject to commodity price swings, you know, labor costs. Um, and so it's extremely risky. Um, there was a very interesting report that came out not too long ago from PricewaterhouseCoopers that looked at mine investments over the last decade and found that almost a third of those investments, um, about $300 billion out of a trillion, you know, this is global, 
over the last 10 years, over th- about a third of those investments were completely written off as losses. And so if you're in the position of you know, a company like Glencore and looking to invest in a mine and you have a roughly one-third chance that your money is going to disappear, you demand very high returns for that investment. You know, this is the very, the classic um, investment principle that the higher the risk is, the higher the return has to be before you will proceed. And so for mines, you see very high, you know, for profitable mines that, that end up opening and opening operating for a long time, you see rates of return, you know, in the 30% area, well above, you know, something that a sort of individual investor um would achieve, but that's because it costs a billion dollars to sink into this mine, and you have a very strong chance of that money disappearing. So they only invest in in really strong business opportunities, um, which is you know in the 30, 40 percent range. So when the this report that you mentioned came out in March and said that the profitability of this mine would be 10 percent, you know that was to us a, a staggering number, and and to most people that invest in mines is a signal that that business plan is not a viable plan. And so that's why you saw them look at uh, expansion scenarios. Well, what, what, would, what would the business case look like if we processed more ore? What if we did it faster? Um, and so to us, that's a very clear signal that you know for the PolyMet project, if it ever gets built, you know, it won't be as the project that we've seen and studied for the last 10 years, it will be as a much, much bigger mega mine processing, you know, four times the, the ore. So what kind of studies have we done of these other scenarios, these bigger, faster mining scenarios? We haven't looked at it at all. When you say we, you mean like... So the, the, the state, yeah, of course, MC, we, MCA looks at it uh, yeah. in detail. Uh, the state has an obligation to study what the environmental impacts of those proposals would be. And for years, we've studied this proposal that was, you know, relatively small compared to these expansions that we're thinking about. So, you know, on the lines of 32,000 tons per day, sounds very big. Um, uh, That has been the sort of mind design, the proposal that's been studied since the beginning. Um, So no one has ever looked at the environmental impacts of what would happen to this area uh, if they built a mine waste facility that had that stored four times as much waste, if they processed four times as much rock. No one's ever looked at that. Uh, what are some other changes that they talked about? I mean, I know we don't know a lot of details because they're just kind of sketched out. But mm-hmm. what are some of the things that give you more concern on the environmental front mm-hmm. about the expanded mining, the faster mining that are proposed there? Mm-hmm. Well, so one of the problems that that is really concerning is that, you know, the St. Louis River already has a problem with things like mercury. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the differences that that was studied in this new report, the one that came out in March that you're talking about, um, they said, well, what what if we did a much bigger mine? We dug the pits deeper, dug larger pits um, and processed four times as much ore. And... To do that, at least preliminarily, what they're looking at is crushing the the ore uh, in the pit before they ship it off to the plant site. The plant site is about six or seven miles away from the mine site, um, and transporting it there by a very long eight eight mile long uh, conveyor belt. Hmm. And so, the concern from our perspective is that you know when you crush up rock and then 
transport it on a conveyor belt, you deposit all of that powdered rock into the wetlands that you're that the conveyor belt is going over. Mm-hmm. And so at the at the headwaters of a river that already has uh, contamination contamination issues, you would have this large industrial conveyor belt con- shipping crushed ore um, over the wetlands that form the, the headwaters. So it's it's a very big concern. And, and that dust was something that they studied. So the, the current plan also has to ship that ore that six or seven miles. So they've already... S- They've already studied some something about that. What do they I mean? But this, but this, this is a new proposal to kind of move it in a different way. Then, right? So, so the the the, the mine plan that they've studied f- since the beginning um, would not crush that rock in the pit. What they would do is they would blast it out in fairly large chunks mm-hmm. um, and ship it by railroad to the plant site. So they purchased the old LTV steel uh, facility, which you know went bankrupt in two thousand. And um, would use that facility to crush the ore. Uh, and instead, you know, it, under this expansion scenario, they would be shifting that to the, the pit where they would crush it and sort of do a first stage crushing and then do more crushing at, at the plant site. So it would be a, it would be a pretty substantial change. Yeah. OK. And then but, the, but then there's also that other question of like what happens with the waste? And so they would be sure. producing it four times fast, faster than the current plans? Sure. So uh, the, the mine design that they've studied since the beginning is would process 32,000 tons per day. Um, this expansion case would process 118,000 tons per day. So, you know, roughly four times as much. Yeah. And that would, would that create more jobs? No. Uh, just, <laughs> I mean, do just, do, just do it faster. Yeah. No, it's the same sort of workflow. Um, you're just doing doing more of it, and it, and it yeah. would play the mine out faster, I assume. It would not under the expansion case because they would be going deeper. Okay, so they would um, do more mining. Then. They'd be doing more mining in the same time frame. So it's a bigger right. mine that goes deeper that does different stuff, doesn't really create any more economic benefit for workers or for the, and, and it creates a bunch of environmental risks that we haven't studied yet. Exactly. That's exactly. So what is MCA doing about that? So we we've made a request to the state agencies saying, um, you know, there's basically there's been a giant bait and switch here. You know, for ten years we've talked about this polymet proposal as a thirty-two thousand tons per day proposal, and now it's become clear that that will never happen. That you know there is no one who's going to invest a billion dollars for a ten percent return. Uh, they might for a 26% return, which is you know what you see from the expansion for processing 118,000 tons a day. Um, so you know we basically we sent a request to the agencies saying, you know there's been a there's been a bait and switch here, and and we are about to proceed with permitting on a project that will never come to f- fruition yeah. without knowing what the actual impacts of the real project, which is the much larger or accelerated one. Has been so we asked them to to take a look at that, um, and they said no. That they said they would not do that. That um, that if Polymet made a permit application for a different mine, then they would look at that. Um, and so we appealed that, and um, and we'll be arguing that in the court of appeals. When, when will that happen? That will probably happen in the spring. The spring of two thousand nineteen. Yes. Well, in the meantime, there's also probably, I mean, it's very likely that we might see some decisions on permits without them ever doing this analysis. So what do you anticipate this fall and winter when it comes to 
decisions being made by the Department of Natural Resources, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, and others mm-hmm. about permit applications that PolyMet's made. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, well, we'll be evaluating all the options, basically, is, is the short answer. Um, it's, it's tough to know what to do specifically because it's such a big issue. So mm-hmm. I'll just use one example of the, the air emissions permit. So the Clean Air Act says that um, this facility would have to get a air emissions permit. Um, a lot of it has to do with what's called fugitive emissions. So that means not something that comes out of a, out of a smokestack, but something that, that happens for, from other processes. So, um, and for this project, things like shipping the ore from the mine site to the plant site is a, is a big part of the air emissions permit. So they look at, well, how much fugitive dust would be generated uh, by shipping it by railroad and how much of that would go into the wetlands. Um, and they do this very complicated modeling that shows, you know, what the impact of those metals getting into the wetlands would be. Um, and so that is, a, is, that is a permit that our state pollution control agency has to issue um, that, you know, is, is likely to come out very soon. And if the project were to proceed on this expansion scenario, that permit would be, frankly, useless. It would be evaluating a air emission scenario that would not exist, um, you know, and be ignoring the, the reality that, you know, of crushing the ore in a pit and shipping it via a large conveyor belt. So, you know, if the state were to issue permits now on the project, they'd be issuing permits for something that is, you know, a fiction. It's something that's not going to be built in the way that they've studied it for for all these years. So for folks who are listening and they're interested in, like, I mean, there's been a lot of public hearings over the years. There's been a lot of um, a lot of chances for folks to file comments with the state. What, what's what's available to folks that are concerned about this now? How should they speak up if they want to see a difference in how this proposal gets treated? Well, at this point, yeah, you're right. That Most of the state agency processes have been completed. So at this point, you know, I would say call your legislator. Tell them that you're concerned about the fact that uh, you know, this project that, we, that we've talked about for years is not going to happen the way that they've said it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that is, I think, the, the most powerful thing that a, that a person can do is to talk to their legislator directly and tell them that they're concerned about this. Yeah, I mean, and especially given what you were talking about earlier in terms of the standards that we have and how we have this idea that we have strong standards, but really the rest of the world seems to be moving ahead of where we're at. There's lots of stuff that the legislature could do to improve those rules and laws, right? Exactly, exactly. It's it's such a stark contrast to um, a place like Montana that has such a long history of mining. Um, and and it's, not see, an, it's not an anti-mining state by any means. There's no, tons of mining there. No, there's no, there's. It's a very large part of their economy. Um, it's also a very large part of their public liabilities. You know, there's 18 Superfund sites in Montana, and 13 of them are mining related. You know. So the difference is that they have to pay for those liabilities every year. And so the politics of it is very different. It's easier for them to pass mining reforms because they have experience with what happens when you don't do that. Um, and that's just something that we don't see in Minnesota. Well, this, is really, this has been a great conversation, Kevin. I really appreciate the time to talk about the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy's mining work. Thanks for your time today, Kevin. Yeah, it was, it was fun. 
Well, Kevin has really dug deep into these critically important issues, and I hope that you learned as much as I did. 2019 is shaping up to be a big year as permits are issued for PolyMet, and we await court review of our challenges to the PolyMet mine proposal. Will Minnesota go down the same path that's led to permanent water pollution in other places? Or will we uphold the strong standards that are supposed to protect our water? MCA will be there in the courts, at the agencies, and at the Minnesota legislature to defend Minnesotans and the water that we all depend on. You have a stake in these important decisions and a say on these decisions as well. Be sure to follow MCEA's work. Visit our website at mncenter.org and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at MCEA1974. That's at MCEA1974. Lastly, we can't do this work without you. If you want to help us represent the next generation's interest at the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, at the Minnesota Legislature, and in the courts, please consider a contribution to MCEA. Go to mncenter.org donate. That's mncenter.org donate. This has been MCEA's Power Lunch with Mining Program Director Kevin Lee. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll share your lunchtime with MCEA again soon. Have a great day.